movement, learning, overcoming difficulties, constraints, injury, power, speed, athletics, research. We cover all of this stuff plus a lot more in this really cool conversation that I had with Joseph from Fighting Monkey. And this was my first exposure to any of this practice, any of this Fighting Monkey work and Joseph's work and Linda's work and their research and what they've created over the last 15 to 20 years. So it was great to connect and I appreciated every little second of this conversation. So I'm not going to hold this up too much more. I'll jump straight into it. We went for about 40 minutes. If you find this podcast helpful or interesting or useful and think of somebody else who might be interested, feel free to forward it along and I'll jump straight in. So enjoy. Hi. It's John. You're listening to the Access Potential Podcast. Okay, so maybe uh, let's just kick off. Tell me like a little bit about sort of, and I know you've probably done this a lot of times, so I apologize, but tell me a little bit about uh, your story and particularly uh, maybe what kicked it off, you know, maybe what you saw at the start with the fighting monkey, how it began, the kind of origin a little bit. You know, I think it all started very early. I think it started already somewhere in a childhood when um, uh, I have the opportunity, as, m- as much as my wife, that Linda, that created with me fighting monkey, we both had an opportunity to be part of um, higher level of sports competition and then later in our life both of us kind of draw into art and these two worlds where something must be effective and can be clearly measurable suddenly in the world of art is not as important because you can and ineffectiveness can be extremely helpful and failure and all the things that would not be maybe appreciated usually in a sports would have a great value. And these two worlds kind of crashed together in our lives and we realized how much they can support each other. Uh, i give you a simple example. When we've been working with an Olympic champion of judo, Ilias Iliadis, he, he said, I'm not doing a judo, I'm doing my judo. And it is his own interpretation. It, it is his own creativity and the failures and his creative findings that made him who he was. And somehow we have we realized that technique can get you only as far. And we realized that we, these very important elements of what made us humans, that we have this capacity to be creative, to flourish, to adapt. And all these unmeasurable aspects are extremely important for our growth and for our almost kind of creating this anti-aging pill for ourselves. Beautiful. I love it. Um, I'm going to pivot and kind of dive into this concept of learning and obviously a big part of the process and journey it sounds like so far and you exude this love and passion for learning that I can almost kind of feel this concept of maybe testing, playing, improvising, simulating, stimulating, tempting, this kind of feel that I get and with limited exposure to what to your work it's kind of... Um, sort of through what I've seen, right? But talk to me about this learning because we have this modern concept of learning with a lot of information, consumption, videos, and watching things. Uh, And I think it was in a Rafe Kelly podcast I was listening to where you said we need to read much less and we need to listen to other people less. 
Uh, and you introduce this concept of listening to ourselves. And often I'll talk a lot about uh, experiential learning and, and going through things for the learning. What does learning mean to you and how does it come into the fighting monkey work or for yourself personally? It is a big junk of our research is how do we learn and if it always has to be very effective and we if we always have to be a goal oriented. You know, what is a real challenge in a, in a physical practice in fighting monkey and understanding our philosophy and also understanding aging in, in general is does everything has to be chewed for us before or can we let people also find their own strategies in learning? So the learning curve in fighting monkey is very steep at the beginning because not much is explained. A lot of things are left blurred and we do it purposefully because when we introduce a when we introduce a complex um, problem or a challenge, we we do not tell to people how to solve it effectively because we might have a good solution, me and Linda, but we believe that the students might be greater than us, and maybe through through collective kind of consciousness, through collective um, problem solving, we can find maybe from good better, and this is very important for us. We also like to decentralize the knowledge. Of course, we have enough of experience. We spend it in, in this field almost 20 years. But that does not mean we are, we are superior to other people. And so we need to create a platform within which people can also experience their way of solving things and finding their own strategies. So we, we, would, we would pose a challenge and then we see how people respond to it. And usually students are coming with a different solutions. And so within the room, you have already a lot of diversity. And you know that diversity is immunity. And you see that people start to copy each other or get influenced by each other. And so they understand they have so many more methodological approaches. And we do not have to be dogmatic. dogmatic. So, the, so the knowledge doesn't have to be centralized towards me or Linda, but it's but it is decentralized and therefore it is more capable of adaptability. Uh, because, you know, you have maybe some really great solution because everyone is promising you to go the most effectively from point A to point B. But what does that really mean, right? So, because the circumstances changes, our age is changing, our context is changing. So it would be really great if we have more tools available. And if the, in this learning process we would be actively participating in evolution of our solutions. You can tell to a kid that this is a pen and with the pen we write. And they will always accept this as a fact. But you can also tell them, look, I have this object in my hand. Can you tell me what is it for or what does it mean? And kids will come with thousands of different ideas of what this object might mean. And, and I'm so much more interested in that. That does not mean that when we when we work with the top athletes, when we work with, like, I don't know, hockey is obviously not a big sport in Australia, but we were just recently returned from a really working with the top uh, NHL players. And we had, to, we had to discuss about the fact that creativity is extremely important. Otherwise, in a critical situations, we will have limited resources to solve the problems that are coming unexpectedly beautiful so it's kind of this concept uh from what i'm hearing kind of learning by observation and pitching in so 
you're facilitating the space where there's almost this inclination very quickly for other people uh, not just to contribute passively through, is it through the movement they're contributing passively or without meaning to, or is there conscious contribution into what they're seeing and feeling as well? Do they give uh, verbal feedback or other forms of contribution on the problem solving? Of course, because we are we are checking how we solve the trouble. So at the end, we yeah. we are sitting in a circle and say, "So how how did you solve it? What was your strategy to get through?" And and then people can hear the other ideas, and this is very very informative. You know, Western culture is organized around a linear way of thinking, and linear way of creating a solution. But line usually breaks, and we are more we are more kind of we use an object of an egg to be an, an metaphor for learning. You know, egg needs an attention. Egg needs to be balanced. Otherwise, it might roll off the table and break. The shell that you are creating, I mean, the, the borders of your, of your knowledge must be gentle enough to, uh, to contain the life, but not too strong for the life inside to break through the egg and make it alive. So metaphorical language is also very important for us because we, we tend to use the scientific language, but scientific language is also using metaphorical language. And a human body is a metaphor. Human body is a poetry. And somehow we like to approach ourselves as, as, as something that is mystical. Mystical in a sense, body is a poetry. We don't know exactly what it is. We would like to know, but it is only an attempt. You know, we always had a good idea of what the universe is and how it works. But each hundred years, we are laughing on a previous interpretations. So I think sometimes it's better if we approach learning about ourselves through not knowing rather than knowing. And this is more spiraling-like, curved-like, unclear-like kind of fluctuating knowledge that is necessary to cultivate. People would come and they would like to ask a clear definition of what you do. But once you define something clearly, also make it die. Because there are so many possible variations, so many possible applications. And this is what we would like that our practice stays. It almost feels a couple of things occur to me as you speak. And one is, um, I'm, I'm wondering, is this concept of metaphorically speaking and bringing almost imagery and feeling into the ideas do you think that was brought through from the artistic background or your dive into the art? You know, this is, this is related, of course, artistic, yes, but we've been, as a human beings, when, when we've been evolving, we always used manipulative spatial kind of awareness, so through using of our hands, through painting, manipulating objects, relating to surrounding, that's how speech was created. We've, we've been artists. We had to sculpt the objects in order to survive. We had to kind of understand better how we, what, what kind of communication we create sur with surroundings. So we always been extremely creative. Without that creativity, imaginary, emotional engagement, knowledge would not be there. It is only lately we have the feeling that science is serious. No, science is very playful. Playful. We, we need to meet more people that are engaged in, in that kind of inquiry of understanding what human is, what life is. It's a very playful, very interesting, very inspiring kind of um, uh, process of being kind of lost. 
you know, Heidelberg, Heidelberg, Heidelberg um, uh, principle of uncertainty in, in, in physics or theory of relativity. These things are, uh, you know, like how we have a wave function that once we look at it kind of collapses into a one position. And of course, I don't want to talk about the physics. I'm not an expert, but just to open up the possibilities rather than closing them and using metaphorical language to open up more variations, more interpretations. We, of course, do not like a poetry because poetry always changes because the, the meaning is um, not very clear. And as you will age, as the, your mood will change, the interpretation will change. Maybe a good example would be, you know, we need to understand what is our biological signature because you give someone a pill, because he, someone has a stomach ache and you give him a pill and he becomes healthy and then you give the same pill to someone else who has also a stomach problem and it does not work. And we need to understand that individuality. So when we do a healing on the joints or when we try to make um, athletes or, or usual people to, to, to perform better, to feel better about themselves, we, we need to understand what is their very specific constitution, what is their very specific proportion and how they relate to the world. Because through the discussion between me and the world, I am created. I am created through that in-between me, I am not by myself and the world is not by itself. We co-create together a kind of mesh that creates us. Through the discussion with you, I am becoming myself. Yeah, I, I know we could, I, we could spend another hour going deeper into that last little bit. I love that. Um, perhaps another time I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to um, pivot a little bit just so that I can cover some other stuff. And I love that you brought up the playfulness. I do want to go into that as well. So <clears throat> I'm personally, I'm not proficient in movement, right? Like uh, I've done some different things in sport, grew up and was fortunate to be kind of free range as a kid and, you know, be outdoors such that things still are working okay and, and the body is pain-free and I can sort of do what I like and enjoy a lot of life and have fun. But I'm not an expert, right? I don't have the high level of proficiency. Um, but I do recognize the, the beauty and I'm, I'm deeply convinced, right? Like I'm on the journey as well. And um, sometimes when we hear about this concept, especially now, the culture, right? This concept of movement. Uh, there is sometimes this seriousness about it as well that kind of seeps through. Uh, maybe by design or maybe that's just how we've sort of shifted or manipulated and brought other ways of looking at the world into the movement culture. I'm not too sure. Um, <clears throat> but we also have this, this feeling of there's this kind of right way, this process, these things that we need to do step by step, you know, learn part one and then continue and move on. I wonder if you could talk to me a little bit about this um, idea and, and tell me whether you notice this also and um, this concept of, of having this kind of order or this feeling that we should go about things a certain way, whatever that might be, versus disorder, versus not following that path, versus shaking things up differently, maybe too early or in a different way, um, doing the wrong thing first or stepping out of line a little bit. Uh, does this resonate with you? And is there anything that you'd kind of like to chip in on that? Yeah, yeah. If, if you allow me to oversimplify, I would like to give a few examples. And one of them would be 
um, you know, when we, when we grow up, always someone has the right ingredients on how to teach people to move. And, and that's a little bit weird, and I tell you why. Uh, when uh, when you, have, you have a small kid in the bed in the evening, right? You, your child, and you want to, the child is maybe eight months or one year, one and a half year, the, the speech is just building up and there is very little vocabulary and that and the child wants to hear your voice and maybe you want to read a fairy tale to that kid would you choose only the words that the kid understand to tell the story or you would simply tell the whole story and and every parent would tell you yes i just tell the whole story with the with the knowledge and with knowing that the kid does not understand not half of it does not understand 80 percent of what you're saying that little, that per, small person in that very beautiful brain where around 700 to 1,000 neural connections are built every single second, they, they bridge that all on not knowing with their imagination, with their intuition, and slowly kind of puzzle the complexity of the world and they start to orientate. And somehow, just because we know how to talk and we somehow know how to move, someone comes with an idea of, what is the right weight of, of movement? And because of his or her preferences, they teach you how to get there and what are the steps and what should be excluded and what should be included. So it is philosophically, but it's also practically very, this is very challenging because it's also not true why I would be teaching you something particular because I do not understand your context and your needs and your constitution. So we need to create a platform where we are sharing the common principles that give birth to different cultural expressions. Different cultural expressions means if you understand the sub-base out of which a complex motoric skills are built, sub-base that are invisible but are common to many sports, to many gestures, if you understand those, that you then you can understand how judo was built or how jiu-jitsu was built or how Greco-Roman wrestling was built because you see they are tracing in all of them, right? It all starts from a touch and hug and touch and hug gave birth to all healing practices. Touch and hug gave birth to all grappling practices across many different nations, across many different cultures, right? Similarly, striking forms, there's only one striking form, and that's our capacity to create a kinetic potential through better organization of our bodies around the axis. So we're learning who we are and how we can create a space in order to generate enough of kinetic potential, which would be birth of boxing, kickboxing, Muay Thai, etc., etc. So my role in this research of Fighting Monkey is to teach you those sub-bases that give seeds to development of many cultural appearances. For me, it's very important that culture brings and builds borders, but nature does not have borders. And if, ha if it has borders, it is penetrable borders. Of course, my body has a border as a skin, but the skin is breathing, skin is sweating, skin is, skin is, skin is interacting with the environment. We do not build up a homeostasis balance within ourselves, but we're creating an allostasis, allos as from Greek someone else. So we are building, achieving the balance through a better interaction with other people. And so we should be allowing to teach people principles that give birth to diversity and different cultural expressions. Now, that means that there will be a less control over your students. And that means that 
business-wise, it's not a very good idea. You don't want independent students. When you have independent students, they can leave you and can create whatever they want. But if you create a society of fear, that means if I tell you what to do and I tell you how to do it, and I explain you when to do it, then you're, they're more likely going to follow you. And we are, in today's society, we are so tired that we want that someone tells us what to eat, when to eat it, how to exercise, how to become stronger. It's very difficult for us to think for ourselves because we have so little energy left, because we are so overwhelmed. And in Fighting Monkey, we have a whole great section that we call zero forms. And zero forms are the forms to allow you to create a time space for yourself when you understand that you can build up a sensitivity that allows you to create variabilities necessary to accommodate the situation you are in, your age, your current job situation, your financial situation. Because if your practice cannot accommodate all those other variables, it doesn't mean it's like an island of your movement that does not mean anything. Practice has to allow you to infiltrate the entire universe that you occupy. So your life can become more easy, so you can flourish, not only survive. In some occasions, it is maybe necessary to create certain steps if, if it would be a particular, a, a particular, maybe a skill, maybe a gymnastics, maybe people have to tell you what to do. But I also seen that kids can grow into it and even adults can grow into it if you just tell them what is the idea, what is the intention rather than always linking something for someone. It is our choice in our life if we want to follow the cultural trends or if we want to study what humanity means in general and be independent. And in Asian worlds, words, it would mean you became immortal. Immortal means that you don't live forever, but you can orientate within the society and you are not locked. It is not so easy to be manipulated. I love that. It's almost like uh, the awareness to sort of develop your own compass and you, based on your own needs as the human versus following the map. Huh? Yes. Well, you know, that someone can give you the map and a very efficient map. So you, someone tells you, let's go to the top of the mountains and they give you the best trail to get there. And of course, you will get there more efficiently. But what if I do not give you the map. If I do not give you the map, you will maybe discover things that no one else seen before. Maybe it's not as effective. Maybe it will, it will take you three times more time than for someone who went there effectively. But you've seen other beauty of the journey. And also we need to understand that human maps, cognitive maps or maps we navigate through uh, physically are changing as we are changing. They are not static maps. The internal landscape of our architecture of our brain is changing, literally. It's not like, oh, I change my thinking and my brain just create a new neural connections. No, the architecture, the actual fabric inside of ourselves changes. And, you know, that's what is behavioral flexibility. That's what is the best in, in investment you can do for your old age. And I would like, and I would like to kind of invite people to think, Oh, I, I want to see myself how I will be moving and thinking in 30 years rather than in 12 weeks program, right? What you can really change in your body in 12 weeks? Nothing. Nothing can be changed. It is kind of hacking. It is kind of trying to take a shortcut that doesn't really work on the long run, I believe. Yeah, 100%. 
I just want to circle back to when you mentioned this culture of fear, if there's this, this feeling of fear, which can obviously crush creativity and personal expression, personal exploration. Uh, just referring back to another, I think it was the same podcast. You met, you had a line, which I loved, which was, you cannot be creative unless someone is pushing you off a cliff somewhere. And to me, when I heard it, this feeling of uh, urgency is in that situation and also necessity, um, urgency that we have to act now quickly and then necessity because it's the highest priority. If we take another step backward, then we're gone off the cliff. So we're looking for solutions. And there's also to me this feeling of um, kind of like a constraint in the situation, maybe in this case, a spatial constraint. So if I move back, I die, I step off the cliff. So that's, that's a no-go zone. We have a constraint in terms of where I can go, uh, like a special kind of movement problem or situation, I guess. And I wanted to ask you to just dive into a little bit how you use um, maybe this concept of urgency, necessity, pressure uh, within the group or within a couple of different people. And then also this concept of constraints, which can become beautiful constraints and maybe help us. But uh, whether this is the tools or whether these are the, so the movement problems, talk to us a little bit about this and, and why do you do that? Why do you shut down doors? Why do you close things to then maybe open other things up? What's going on there? Okay, I, I, so I start with the simple uh, game with the kid, right? So we, we, I don't know how it calls in English, but it's the uh, catch me if you can, right? So ducking game. So my son is running and I try to catch him, right? How, how we call this game? This game is... Um, yeah, yeah. Um, catch, uh, tiggy, tag, catch me if you can. Yes. So, so there is a certain amount of competition, right? That's one element. So there is already certain constraint. Then the beautiful element is when, when you play with the kid is that when you catch the kid on the ankle, the kid can go, oh, wait a minute, you cannot catch me on the ankle. And I'm asking why I cannot catch you on the ankle. Well, because ankle doesn't count. And, and you say, but you didn't tell me that before. And he says, well, but I'm telling you right now. And then you play again and then you catch again the kid and he says, wait, wait a minute, you cannot catch me here. And I say, why I cannot catch you there? Because I'm in the corner and corner is a home. And in home, you cannot catch me. But I said, but again, you didn't tell that. And so the kids are usually changing the rules and they, they're changing the game as, as, it, as it fits right to them. And at first I thought, you know, like, this is kind of unfair. But then later on, I realized that life is a little bit like that. And so... You know, when, when we clearly define the rules, it is like when we create the borders for a game. So borders for a game, and, and when you play a soccer, you have a clear line. Or when you play a tennis, as we've seen in Australia, right? It, when, when you create a clear line. But what happens when you break one of these lines and you allow a certain amount of uncertainty in that game? What, how do you would train today if you do not know what tomorrow brings? You are an Olympic champion. How are you going to train for next Olympics if you do not know what the disciplines will be. Everything will change. You can be black belt only if you know what you're going to play. But no one is black belt in life. And so you create a certain restraint. And when people start to 
becoming adaptive and they adopt the rules and they become better and they become more comfortable and they look for most effective way to win, you change the rules. You change them slightly or you change them really dramatically. And you observe how people respond to those, respond to those changes, how much, how much flexibility they have, how much tolerance they have, if they only comment or if they cry or if they are excited about the change, if suddenly because maybe the weakest becomes the strongest because you change a certain element in the game and now the strong feels weak and he feels frustrated and maybe wants to leave the game. And these are the real games in our life. And this is how we play it. So I can, it's very difficult, you know, I, I'm, I'm preparing a quite interesting project with very known psychologists and uh, you know, the, the, the funny thing is that we, we would like to keep in control life, but life cannot be controlled. And so it is important for us to introduce that uncertainty, uncertainty that life brings. And as you are exposed to those uncertainties, we see really how behaviorally flexible you are. If you have the neuroplasticity, if you can adapt, and therefore how you can adapt in life, because I cannot touch your mind through talking. I touch your mind through what we call movement situations. I need to see you how you act, how you behave, how you position yourself to an object, how you position yourself to a trouble. And in some occasions, I give you a certain restrictions like time or a space. And I'm looking at how you're solving it. In another sense... You know, this concept of like, say, an injury, say a sore knee, a sore ankle, something like this, uh, can bring on a constraint as well, something not moving to its full capacity. Or maybe it's even the mental emotional constraint, something from the past that we're not sure, we're not confident. Just talk to me a little bit about injury, um, because I know that it may be a little bit different process than for some other people. Uh, maybe injury, how you approach injury, just any brief thoughts on that? Okay, um, so what do, what do we do? Every, every great system creates a great deficiencies. It doesn't matter if it is a yoga, it is a tai chi, it is a basketball, it is running. After a while, that particular um, activity, because it is more, more prevalent, creates a certain monotony in your joints. And that monotony will eventually create a, a, a great efficiency on the long run. Our role, or, or could, you know, like maybe for many people not, but in case it does, we need to have a look on how to build or how to rebuild that proprioceptive variability, that ability of our joints to have that zero position like a child that they could go in any direction and adopt any language, gestural language or uh, coordinative language. And you learning in this proprioceptive variability, you learning your joints, what are the critical torsions? What are the critical angles within which the body can be injured? But you are teaching it in such a way because of slow motion, because of a lot of uh, awareness, you are not getting injured. You are just ex ex kind of making very conscious for your proprioceptors. These are the places where body is reaching its functional limits and so you what you're building up is that the joints as well have their own intelligence because when you are in um, a high moments of performance whatever mental or physical performance if something unexpected happens 
it is very complicated to send a lot of amount of information. Let's say you are running like an AFL and then someone hits you from the side. You need to reorganize your structure in order to diminish the possibility of the injuries. But there is no time for your knee to send an information to the brain and then from the brain back to the knee to organize. This loop is very slow. And so you need to teach self-adaptive system within which the joints can take decisions. And this uh, regaining this proprioceptive variability, these zero forms are building that kind of capacity within which body almost act in parenthesis as by itself without your conscious um, contribution. The other thing is in our movement situations, we like to provoke a small injuries. So if you get in something a little bit competitive, in the game, you might feel like, oh, you got tired there, your knee got maybe a little bit inflammated because you push too much. But these are all very, very good small injuries because they don't, they don't threaten you, but they give you a very clear feedback of where you are and how you need to steer your training, your practice in order to withstand the pressures that you're meeting in your, in your daily life. Yeah, I love that. So... I've heard you speak a little bit about this concept of power exploration. And in a lot of the culture, uh, there's a certain kind of conditioned status or beliefs around strength and power. And it sounds like we both have a background from some different sports. And maybe this is in society, maybe this is perhaps part of the kernel from this, like the athlete or the idea or ideal of this sort of physical person or this concept of strength. And we have this power that we can fully measure in the context of like a, a finite game, like a bounded square, kind of like you talked about when the game is over, we can measure how we win and assess the power, or maybe it's within um, just one part of that game in a certain movement we can assess and we can even try to quantify and these sorts of things with different weights and stuff like that. And... Uh, when I watch you and my my journey with the fighting monkey stuff is really hasn't started. It's I've been shown if you know introduced from some people of to what's what's out there the possibility, but I see this concept rather of kind of infinite games. And you talked about the kid when you play um, catch me if you can, changing the rules, bending the boundaries of the game whilst in play, and you're not playing with fixed boundaries, but you're setting boundaries perhaps for a period. And then, bound, and then bending them and changing them. So with all of that being said, this ability to change and bend the rules and the, the game changing, the rules changing as life changes, what does power exploration mean then? What does power mean? What does this concept mean here when it's separate? It's different from the typical sport or the bounded or the finite game. So... We organize our research, our movement research or joints development is organized around five points. And the first one is coordination. So that's number one and most fundamental. When you're a kid, you try to reach something, you coordinate, you try to achieve your, your, your idea or your intention is being executed by, by your organism. And little by, by repeating always the, these coordinative patterns in, in diverse circumstances, you start to gain a rhythm. So coordination and rhythm creates a kind of sub-base that gives a birth 
to kinetic potential means that you, you move so freely and so ry rhythmically that it's very easy for you to strike very, um, um, very effectively. You can kick, you can change the directions, etc. So your body is organized rhythmically, musically. It's attuned. Your muscles are attuned. There is a good tonality. There is a good variations. There are, there are many different coordinative patterns that you can absorb, etc. The fourth one is power exploration. And the fifth one is strength. Power exploration is because you are well organized and because your perception is great, because you have a great variability, you have playfulness and creativity, you have an option to get that body in very meaningful, powerful um, um, performance. If, if, the, if, the, if the circumstances do not change, so that means, for example, you only run 100 meters sprint, and you know that no one is going to hit you, no one is going to throw anything on you, if the surface is always the same, maybe in that particular very safe environment that does not change, maybe a certain fixed pattern might work, a certain strength work. But in the moment we would enter, we would enter let's say, the, the world of, I, I don't know what would be familiar for Australian public, but let's say grappling, um, I would so what you would prefer to work with heavy weights so I have a bar and I lift the bar and I do Olympic weightlifting or I constantly lift another human being like a living object object that has ideas object that does not want to go with me object that has um, variabilities object that is not easily to grasp we work with really high class um, um, Greco-Romian free wrestling coach to uh, improve and deepen our movement situations in Fighting Monkey. And we are discussing where and if the weight are necessary for high-class, world-class level um, uh, fighters, let's say. And, you know, if in case you would really only lift the weight and that's how we would define you being athletic, then yes, then this is the right thing to do. But if variability... If, um, if communication in the play, if precision, fine motorics are involved, then, you know, maybe power exploration is the most dominant aspect of the practice there should be. If, let's say, what we've been discussing in this very high class level hockey players were, okay, I need to work stupid little strength conditioning if I would have to hit the puck in a maximum speed in a really huge board like 10 by 10 meters. And if the puck would pass through the wall, then I would be the Olympic champion or world champion. But this is not the case. You don't need a maximum power, maximum strength. You need a power that is intelligent, that can give you feedback, that can give you a space to interconnect with other people and be strategic, be, be a good player that is able to see the whole game and see how other teams are moving, etc. And we will have a session with a professional AFL team in, in October in Australia. And this is what we're going to discuss, how to create a practice. And I have prepared something for them very creative, how to train the joints that are being affected by the motion of another human being. And so there is already in strength training, there is a variability is necessary to build up a tissue that have the intelligence of a possible impact, have the intelligence of knowing where the stretch is too big and so the joint should collapse rather than resist and create some kind of tour or break in an ACL or um, kind of displacement of the joint. Wonderful. It's, uh, yeah, really, really cool. 
So you mentioned these words, uh, playful creativity, and I'm going to refer back to, there's a book, James Cass, uh, Finite and Infinite Games, which I quite like. And um, the, he has a line in there, she who wants to play cannot be forced to play. So the play, the, the play must be voluntary. If we're forced into it, then there's a conflict and it's no longer playful. And this, this idea of play is involuntary, that it's forced, but there seems to be this kind of conflict in, in the culture and society at the moment because we have this inbuilt seriousness, a lot of us, you know, taking things so seriously. And so there's people talking about play, aware that we need to play, be playful and then be serious in your play as well. Yet it's also this kind of paradox because now we're telling people to play and we're, uh, we're forcing it on. And so it can, when it's facilitated, depending on how we go, sometimes it can feel a little bit strange, like a little bit forced into this thing that maybe we're not sure, maybe the person's unfamiliar with how to do this. Uh, because of how they're looking at life in a bigger picture. And it kind of moves into an exercise. And I just wondered if you could tell me about playfulness in your own life. Maybe it's in movement to start. Maybe it's with kids, right? Maybe it's with family. Maybe it's with friends. What does it kind of mean to you? Even just some general thoughts on it. Um, I want to say at the beginning, you know, some, sometimes people have the feeling that, that creativity is the easiest thing to do. I mean, creativity is usually a struggle. Creativity is, it, you know, it's not, you are not always laughing when you are creative. Because in creativity, in finding novelty, there is a lot of failure. And a lot of failure, uh, it's, it's sometimes very discouraging. You are quitting many times and then you restart and there's a lot of End roads are extremely important to find something that haven't been there before. You know, like when you do new scientific experiments, you it seems like many times you just can't solve it. And you are still forced. You still kind of, there is this urge of trying to understand and be understood. Trying to understand something, something that is beyond your reach. And so creativity can be... Uh, can be complicated at some time. Now, you know, I spent eight years doing my PhD on communication training. And, and, um, and you know, I think we are all, we all need to be kind of alchemists on how we, how we sense the people in the group. Uh, I, I like what I like on Fighting Monkeys that we, we don't have a curriculum that must be met before we come to see the people. So when we see the people, a lot of things can be changed. And it can start by this very simple questions we, we meet, in the, we meet in, the, in the workshops and you can, you can first ask, um, um, if they do not know you, you can ask, guys, uh, what do you think? Do I like to spend more holidays in the mountains or in, in the sea? Do I like more coffee or a tea? Uh, how many children do I have? Uh, and you start with the simple questions and, and you start to see how, how intuitive people are. And, and it's a question of what kind of gate, what kind of communication tools you choose to get people engaged. This is, we should not be coming somewhere with the, with the knowledge that I came to teach you something. But we usually also say, you know, we come here, we cannot teach you anything in a workshop of today's, but what we can do, we can share together a certain ideas and we see how we respond to them. 
So it's not that I have the games that are better than someone else's and I have the right ingredients. No. Or everything is an attempt. So when, you know, I, I am very interested in how our brain is aging. I'm very interested in why our joints are so prematurely aging. I'm very interested why we are old when we are already 25 years old, why, why we immediately know everything. And so I am, I am very interested in seeing how we could break those behavioral patterns and, and how we could intru- introduce again the variability and what would be the, what would be the communication channels what would be what would be the games or how we would introduce that kind of a new thinking where not everything must be in in the pool that we already know okay i love that i will we'll wrap it up pretty quick here i just wanted to ask uh, one last little question if i may um you respond to the emails when we met on the email with the exclamation mark hey john with the exclamation mark and I love this, and I can feel this zest for life even through just this video call. That, and in the, also when I see you moving, even though it's on video, right, not in person. But do you have any quick thoughts on whether it's movement, uh, connection, or this this uh, energy or vitality or um, zest, this this fire that I can sense that comes through? Uh, any little words on that for people? I, I believe that, you know, movement always been part of ourselves. We don't have to make it feel more special. And, and you know, we should not feel superior to others when we think we move and so we are somehow understanding better who we are as human beings. I, I met writers and philosophers that hardly ever move. They only go for a walk and they meet other people and they truly understand to great extent what life is and what the universe is in some way. And of course, we choose movement uh, as our expression tools, because as I said, I, I like to understand my mind and my biological signature through movement because I want to truly understand who I am. But that does not mean this is the only way to, to search it. And, and I believe that the, the vitality, the, the curiosity of life is not directly related to movement, maybe, like in a sense of exercising or, or doing a fitness or whatever. So it's more, more wish to cultivate life, more wish to love life. That, that, that would be basically it. To kind of remember that, that gods were jealous of us because we were mortals, because we had certain limitations. We were trying to figure out what's going on. And that, and then that incapacity to find out is something that's driving us forward. And I think the movement stops when we think we know and we are smart and we are clever. When you meet someone and he tells you, I know. And so the movement has stopped. If it, if, it is, if, it, if it is the drive that you are not really sure and that you, are, you have that openness to hear other people, that's what I think promotes a more water-like flow like Heraclitus would be, the Greek philosopher would be saying. So we'll wrap it up here. People can go to fightingmonkey.net. My question for you, uh, are you coming to Australia again soon or New Zealand? Is there anywhere else that people can go to find out more about Fighting Monkey or about uh, what it is that you do? Well, we, we teach in Europe, mainly North America. We time to time appear in Asia, but I think for Australian audience, the best would be and most easy is to get to know the work from face to face 
in Australia where we have open workshop, but also intensive that will be out of Perth somewhere in a beautiful nature where they can dive into um, a, a, a practice where we will also share our research principles so they can understand how these things um, got formulated rather than only receiving it as ready formulas. Okay, beautiful. Thank you so much for your time and I appreciate every second of it. And I know a lot of people will enjoy this and will appreciate the time also. So thank you so much and uh, all the best for today and I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you very much.